Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Trainer Talks and Tales. You're joined, of course, by myself, Daisy and Tess. Hey, Daisy. Thank you to everyone for following, rating the show and sharing it across your socials. We've been seeing it on our socials this week and we're very appreciative. We love seeing you listening to the podcast and we hope you enjoyed last week's episode too. We do have another great conversation as always, but first Daisy, how was your week and do you have any recommendations? My week was fairly average, but that's okay. We are recording this on a Monday, which is the start of a brand new week, which I am excited for. And we do have a couple of really cool things happening this week. And one of them is that I get to come visit you at Lone Pine in a few days, which is always exciting to see all the birds. Now, I do have a bit of a recommendation that's not a podcast for the first time ever, (laughs) and it's that I finally caught up on some of the episodes of Gold Coast Ocean Rescue, um, which is on Channel 7-2 for anyone that's in Australia. It's a fairly new TV show that primarily follows around the SeaWorld Gold Coast Foundation and their rescue team and their head vet, Claire Madden. Now, they care so much to so many different marine animals that need rescuing or rehabilitation around the southeast of Queensland. And they also touch on some really cool projects and research that's happening around the world. So I would absolutely recommend that. It's a really good one to watch. And it's cool that it's quite close to home too, which is nice. But Tess, how was your week? Yeah, good. Um, I had a good week. Thank you. Sounds like it's better than yours. Um, I- I'm finally catching up after many weeks off, I guess, with holidays. And then I had um, that week off for the conference. So I was a bit behind when I came back to work, but I'm feeling on top of things finally, which is nice. I did mention briefly the other day on one of our previous podcasts that I was really interested in getting a Brahmi kite to exert himself a bit more. So the other day I took him down to the dam for his training session, threw food on the water um, and he successfully raked it like four out of five times, which I was impressed to see. And you could see him figuring out how he would catch it and really like working hard to get that food. So I was very pleased with the session and I'd like to do that at least once once a week. I think that would be really fun for him, but fun for us as well. That's awesome. Congratulations on that achievement. Let's celebrate that approximation, as Ryan would tell us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Now, today we do have Eliza, who is joining us on the podcast. Eliza has worked in the field with numerous species. She's also spent some time overseas doing field work and is now focusing her time primarily on her PhD, which is researching wildlife disease in wombats. She chats about all of the above in so much more detail. So, Tess, let's get into it. Eliza, yay. Thank you so much for joining Tess and I today. We're both really looking forward to this chat. No, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's really great to meet you guys. And yeah, very honoured to have um, me on. <laughs> Definitely. Now, we do start every episode here at Trainer Talks and Tales with a fast five. So are you happy for us to get straight into it? Yeah, yeah, all good. Okay, mammals or birds? Mammals. Vampire Diaries or Gossip Girl? 
Oh, that's tough. I'm probably Gossip Girl. Netflix or Disney Plus? Oh, probably Disney. Cheese <laughs> or chocolate? Uh, chocolate. Dogs or cats? Oh, dogs. Well done. Well, Eliza, you have used your experience to create an amazing community within the animal industry called Women in Wildlife. Can you tell us a bit about what Women in Wildlife actually is? Yeah, well, thank you so much for that. Um, Yeah, Women in Wildlife is an online community of like-minded people aiming to connect and amplify women and non-binary persons working in the wildlife industry around the world. Um, We're across Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, and we also have a global rep community. Our team at Women in Wildlife does just consist of five women based in Australia, all really passionate about, yeah, both wildlife and um, gender equality in STEM. So cool. Well, Let's touch a little bit more on your journey into the industry and how exactly that led to you creating Women in Wildlife. Sure can. Um, Yeah, so try and do a bit of a summary, but uh, in short, I did a Bachelor of Science um, majored in zoology at uni um, down here in Victoria, and then I did an honours year in veterinary biosciences, um, looking at wildlife parasitology. So I sort of looked at two different parasites, um, psychoptic mange in wombats and another protozoan parasite called um, Neospora in dingoes. And yeah, I did a lot of volunteering sort of during my studies um, with wildlife in yeah, a few different sectors, but I ended up also working um, as a zookeeper at Ballarat Wildlife Park um, as a mammal keeper down here in Victoria. Um, yeah, working with our awesome um, Aussie natives. And yeah, then I, since graduating honours, I did quite a lot of travelling. Um, yeah, did a lot of paid and uh, volunteer experiences around Australia and in wildlife and overseas. Um, and then, yeah, I spent the last 12 months working as a mammal zookeeper at Australia Zoo. And pretty much now I'm doing my PhD um, at the Melbourne Vet School, um, continuing my work in psychoptic mange and wombats. So yeah, that's sort of in a nutshell. <laughs> wow, that's pretty impressive. And you've obviously experienced so many different things. Do you think that your volunteer work you did initially at the start helped you where you are now? Yeah, for sure. I think it was really good to like sort of dip my feet in like a few different areas. So I did, yeah, obviously a bit of keeping volunteering, but did a bit of um, not-for-profit sort of online space, which, yeah, really helped me, especially with women and wildlife. Um, so, yeah, I think and doing, yeah, the conservation work and a bit of research volunteering, it definitely just sort of gives you an idea, I guess, of what you like. I think that's really important before, um, yeah, I guess, going into a pay position and sort of delving further down a pathway I think it's really important to know what you like but yeah also showing those different skill sets that you have and that you do have a range of skills um, that you can bring to a job when you're sort of ready to apply for them. Yeah definitely and Tess and I both volunteered so we always recommend it for people who are just starting within the industry and then so how exactly did that all lead to you creating and developing the idea of women in wildlife? Yeah so in terms of our women in wildlife I was actually doing some background reading. I think it was for my honours year. Um, I've got no idea why this came up in the search, but I came across a paper um, titled The Changing Face of the Wildlife Profession um, by Wendy Anderson. And this paper spoke about the three main barriers faced by women working in the wildlife industry. Um, Number one was opportunities for career development. Number two was the lack of female support network. And number three was flexible working hours um as I wasn't an employer like obviously still not an employer but I couldn't really do anything about um yeah the career development and flexible working hours but I thought I could try and yeah create a sort of space for women to connect and really um yeah make the strong network that that this paper sort of identified that was lacking um but yeah I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I 
I finished school and I think having this kind of platform or even when I started in the wildlife industry, sort of knowing the different pathways you can go down and that there are so many different routes um, that, yeah, so many different options and really amplifying that, um, yeah, I think would have been a really good resource to me. So hoping to create that for lots of other women. I was at a conference last week. I feel like we talk about conferences every single episode, (laughs) but I saw two people wearing women in wildlife shirts. So it was lovely to see it represented on a t-shirt um on that where do you see women in wildlife going yeah so I'd love to keep um just growing our network and sort of reach as many women as possible um around the globe like the more women that we're able to amplify and the connections we're able to make and get the younger women that we're able to inspire the better um we've also recently started like a schools program um just here in Victoria where yeah some members of our team have just been going around to schools and presenting um sort of in science week and things like that and yeah I just really love that um yeah as I said said before like I would have loved that when I was in school and knowing that that's even an option I just sort of thought if you were interested in animals you had to be a vet and that was kind of the only options out there so yeah I would have really loved that um personally but we've also uh, just um started recording our own podcast so that's yeah hopefully the next sort of little avenue for us welcome to the Thank podcast you. world Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be a really like organic uh, way to sort of bring like our social media interviews to life and sort of delve a little bit deeper um, into, yeah, the women that we chat to, which would be really good. But sort of longer term, I'd love to um, sort of fund opportunities for women to pursue opportunities in wildlife, um, whether it's sort of through scholarships um, to go to uni or opportunities to do some more field work um, so that, yeah, people um, can get involved in and sort of fall in love with field work. Um, but yeah, lots of ideas, obviously a lot of work, but yeah, that's sort of hoping the tracks that we're going to go down. That's so awesome. You should be super proud of the community that you've created. And I love that you are constantly sharing like the different things that different women in wildlife are doing in different facilities, different avenues, different jobs on your socials too, which is really cool to see what everyone else gets up to. And hopefully it will inspire others to do maybe different jobs or what other relevant jobs are out there within the same sort of industry. Um, now, earlier, you did briefly mention about some overseas work that you've done. So you have had the opportunity to participate in that, which is really cool. Is there any chance you could chat a little bit more about what you have got up to and how you got into those um, opportunities? Mm, yeah, I've been super lucky. Um, so yeah, my first sort of experience that I did was during uni, I went um, volunteered at an elephant conservation centre um, in Laos. Um, yeah, it was really fantastic to sort of understand the different aspects involved in rehabilitation and soft-releasing elephants um, that were sort of used in tourism and circuses and logging. And seeing those elephants really have such little like innate behaviours left after being yeah very exploited and then seeing them sort of regain them to an extent after being, um, yeah, rehabilitated and released was really special and I think that really did um yeah inspire me to sort of do more of that kind of work um yeah really lucky to work a little bit with orangutans in Borneo as well during my studies but then yeah once I graduated um from honours I did an internship on Heron Island research station um sort of looking at coral but got to spend a lot of time with the turtles which was really special um and then yeah I went to Namibia in Africa I worked at a research station looking at um 
carnivore behavior, so mostly lions and African wild dogs. And that was, yeah, so different to anything I've ever done, sort of more working in disease. It was, yeah, very um, different sort of research, but really enjoyed it. And then, yeah, most recently I went to the Subantarctics, um, got a scholarship to visit Macquarie Island, which, um, yeah, was amazing, incredible. It just didn't feel real at all. And, yeah, I felt very lucky um, to sort of be able to see a part of the world that, yeah, not many people get to go to. So, yeah, super special. But um, in terms of getting into these experiences, I know it's super cliche, but networking is just so important and, yeah, saying yes to so many opportunities. Um, And, yeah, obviously not overcommitting yourself or burning out by saying yes to too much, but you do take something away from, yeah, every experience that you have and it just does really widen your skill set just increases the kind of people that you meet as well um yeah really just diversifies all the different yeah niches in wildlife and getting to speak to lots of different people as well and being flexible is also really important I think um you might think yeah you know exactly what you want to do but yeah having sort of an open mind to different opportunities um going to conferences um is a really great way of networking but honestly even through social media like I have met sounds super lame but yeah I have met a lot of people through social media that you know you see what kind of work they're doing and then you're interested in that and you know they're more more often than you'd ever imagine happy to let you tag along or um yeah sort of collaborate with so yeah it's definitely um really important networking Wow, I'm so jealous. It sounds like you've had so many cool experiences and definitely saying, you know, social media is definitely not a lame way to reach out. Like, you know, we're talking today because of that. And it's such a cool modern day way of communicating with different people and getting involved in different opportunities. Is there like a particular website or like some like a person people can reach out to if they are interested in like finding out what are available or is it just kind of what you mentioned connecting on social media and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it depends kind of what you're looking for. Like in disease, we have um, like the Wildlife Disease Association um, in Australasia, and that's, yeah, a really great network. Um, there's sort of lots of different, um, I guess, communities for those certain niches. But, yeah, in terms of social media, like if you do just reach out to people, um, yeah, they can generally send you in the right direction of what you're looking for. Um, a great way to get sort of field work experience and volunteer experience in that area really is to help PhD students out. I mean, we're always looking for people um, to help and yeah, it's just a really great way to test the waters and what you enjoy as well. Well, on that actually, can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, um, so my PhD yeah, is in psychopathic mange and wombats. Um, yeah, so for People who don't know anything about wombats or mange, um, basically it's an ectoparasite mite that causes serious welfare um, and conservation problems in wombats. So it's a very generalist mite. It affects over 100 mammals worldwide, but wombats are one of the most susceptible, um, most severely affected by it in the world. Um, few different reasons for this. I mean, obviously they do share burrows and the burrows are a very good climate for the mite to survive. Um, and they're very itchy animals for anyone who didn't reach with wombats. They itch at the best of times, let alone when they have something to itch at. But yeah, my pretty much the research at the moment, there's a lot of pe- great people doing great work in this space, but not um, there's not much scientific evidence of the main treatment drug used, um, which is called cydectin. Um, only one sort of scientific study has been conducted over 
12 years ago. Um, so my sort of research is looking at um, treatment. Um, so doing sort of pharmacokinetic trials, so sort of seeing how the drug is metabolized in the body. Um, so sort of working with captive wombats first, and then the next stage is to do the field trials and sort of see, um, yeah, we can get this treatment dose right. Because, um, yeah, the treatment dose is currently based off other animals. Um, so, yeah, studies that are done in like cattle and sheep and things. Whereas wombats, you know, they're so dense and their their skin's so thick and their hair's so coarse. So yeah, they're a very different animal working with. And do you find that the mange or the treatment and training, I guess, has been focused on a particular species of wombat or is it across all of the different species? Yeah, so um luckily there's not in the northern hairy nose wombats. So if yeah, it was to reach them, it would be definitely devastating as they get as only about 300 left um yeah it would be really detrimental to their population it is documented in southern hairy nose um they don't seem to get it as bad as the bare nose wombat so they're definitely the most severely affected so that's the ones we're looking at now um the bare nosed cool well that's it's really exciting for you to be a part of that and i'm pretty keen to hear about how it all goes and what success that you have with that I guess we'd love to know, like, how important do you think it is to educate people on wildlife disease across numerous species? And is there anything in particular people can do to help? Yeah, so there's quite a lot um, you can do. And yeah, education is so important. Not many people really know that much about disease, I don't think, in wildlife, um, particularly for animals that are already endangered. Yeah disease can be absolutely detrimental to their survival as a species. But yeah, in wildlife disease, we really do rely actually on a lot of citizen science. So we do rep- like rely on a lot of uh, reporting um, of disease and there's a lot of different portals um, you can use to report that for mange. Depending um, what state you're in, there are different portals you can report it through. In Victoria, we have um, mange management. So yeah, you just go online and you Google mange management and you literally just record where a photo if you can or just the location of the one back and then a volunteer comes out and actually treats that um, wombat with mange. So it's really important that, yeah, you get the location for that. And, yeah, different um, animals, different other species and different diseases have different portals. So if you're ever unsure and you see an animal that looks a bit funny, just, yeah, Google the animal um, or bring up your wildlife carer. But, yeah, if you can Google the animal and potentially um, what you're looking at, then hopefully um, the portal will come up. But yeah, really important that um, yeah, if you do see something, it's really um, important to report it. But education is really important as well. So I saw on um, social media um, a few weeks ago and a lot of people were sending it to me. There was this wombat, um, it's actually a golden wombat, a bare-nosed wombat that um, had been spotted in Mansfield, which is in the high country here in Victoria. It was a golden, so yeah, it's a very rare um, gene and not many people have seen necessarily a golden wombat before. But yeah, I was getting sent probably 10 of this um, same news article each day for about a week. But the wombat actually had very severe mange and yeah, without sort of that education, obviously no one sort of sending it to me or, you know, even reporting on it had any ill intent at all. But um, you wouldn't really send a photo of, you know, a dog that's obviously very, very sick um, around. And yeah, sort of having that education that, um, yeah, that one actually is dying. Like, and if it isn't treated, um, it has a hundred percent death rate. Like you can't, wombats don't have any sort of innate resistance to um, mange and yeah it does need to be treated Um, so yeah sort of having that education around it I think is really important and sort of knowing to look out what (laughs) um, to know what to look out for is really important yeah definitely and being obviously an endemic species it's so important that they have our protection too so maybe we can get all the details that you just said about and we can post it in our show notes too so people know where they can reach out to if they do ever spot any wildlife with signs of disease and hopefully that can help slightly 
We did have some questions from our listeners. So question number one was, do you have any advice at all for keepers that are currently in facilities that might be looking to get into field work, but may or not be at facilities that are supportive or have their own conservation programs? Yeah, I think it's really great when keepers um, do have an interest in going out to the wild. Obviously, so much of what yeah we do as keepers is educating um, guests about yeah the plights that our animals are facing in the wild. So I think yeah, having this experience in field work is amazing and everyone should sort of aspire to be doing it. Um, yeah, it's a bit hard to say per, I suppose, organisation. And obviously those larger organisations, government-run organisations, generally do have those larger conservation programs that... Um, yeah, probably a bit easier to get into if your facility doesn't. Um, If your facility doesn't so much offer um, these conservation projects, I would definitely just say bringing it up with your head of department or even higher if you feel comfortable saying this is, you know, I'm interested in doing this. Um, Do they have any connections or is it something even that they would be interested in doing? Like they could, yeah, might already have sort of something going in the works of wanting to start um but yeah it's a bit of a tricky one um but yeah just trying to reach out outside of work like obviously it does get a bit tricky um you know taking doing it in your own time and taking leave to do um that kind of work is a little bit tricky but yeah definitely if you are interested um reaching out to yeah, as I sort of said before PhD students or um anyone um you sort of know doing that work is yeah really great way to go and I assume that most field work is all voluntary, time, like on your own time. So people still have to obviously make a living. Yeah, and there's obviously so many problems within the industry for that. Like I think we do overexploit volunteers. And as, you know, it's a bit contradictory to what we said a bit earlier, like volunteering is a really good way to get in the industry and um, see what you like doing. But, yeah, I think in this industry it is so competitive and everyone wants um you know to be a part of it which is great but it does often fuel yeah sort of burning ourselves out by volunteering when we're already really qualified and really experienced to be doing something but as a keeper you do have that really you know handling experience that a lot of um I guess people you know who've just gone straight from uni and you know done a science degree don't have and I think that is really invaluable so I don't think you should yeah undermine um how important that is and yeah I think that you really would have value um, even as a keeper with no sort of science experience um, having that handling experience really is so important absolutely and even with everything that you listed before your species that you've worked with and the amount of field work you've done is just incredible so uh, from an employer's point of view I imagine that it would look great on a resume too there is the issue of not getting paid but it would be phenomenal in terms of professional development so you need to weigh up the pros and cons I guess with that um talking about field work and degrees is it possible to get into field work without a degree I can't really speak like worldwide but in terms of scientific field work unfortunately yeah at least for the paid positions um you definitely do need a degree Uh, a lot of the time for volunteer positions you do as well um but yeah, it really depends case by case. Um, as I said, yeah, if you do have lots of keeping experience, lots of handling experience and you see an opportunity and, you know, even if it says you might need a degree, I still would recommend still applying and um, asking for feedback, I guess, as well and seeing if um, they think that there would be value in you applying for similar positions. Um, but yeah, as I said a few times, but the PhD student volunteering, like a lot of the time, the handling is the most important. So yeah, unfortunately, like a lot of the positions even I applied for after graduating with honours, um, so yeah, done a whole year of research, 
like you, a lot of the volunteer um, positions, you still needed an honours degree, which is a bit wild. Yeah. Now, heading back a little bit towards Wombats, our last question is aimed at Wombats. Now, I've had the pleasure of working with Wombats and some of the same Wombats that you have too, and they're definitely a lot of fun but also fairly challenging too, especially Miss Burrow. If you've worked at Australia Z, you'll probably know a little bit about Burrow. <laughs> She's the best, but she taught me a lot. Um, what do you think was the most challenging thing for you when working with wombats? Oh, gosh, yeah, they're so cute, but they're so, so cheeky. I think, yeah, I thought I knew pretty much everything there was about working with wombats, but Baru definitely taught me otherwise, so she was definitely a good one to work with. Um, yeah, so they're very, well, as far as marsupials go, they're quite intelligent, but, yeah, they're extremely stubborn, and in terms of captivity particularly, they don't really want to do um, what, yeah, you want to do, and most of the time they are sort of scheming um, the exact opposite, so they're often plotting, um, in my opinion, but getting to know them and getting to know how to work around them um, can be difficult But in captivity, but it really is a whole sort of new ball game in the wild because you have all of those traits um, which make them as cute as they are, but, um, yeah, we've also got the nocturnal aspect, the burrowing aspect, so sort of working with a charismatic species that's nocturnal and burrowing um, can make tracking and relocating the same wombat very difficult. Um, yeah, they're very elusive. Obviously, they can also run very, very fast, um, up to 40 kilometres an hour just for a short sprint. But yeah, they've also got some pretty uh, gnarly teeth, I guess. And yeah, the, having those cartilage plates um, does make them a bit of a bulldozer. So yeah, very fun, but uh, yes, can be definitely challenging. <laughs> And being that you've had the great opportunity to work with them in human care and then also wild populations of wombats too, have you seen that they are quite similar in their personalities and different traits that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think even different between even between different uh, zoo facilities, I've noticed that yeah, can be quite different. Um, yeah, there is definitely a bit of a difference. I think obviously the ones we've worked with um, in zoos um, are used to us and yeah, they would definitely push us more. I mean, in the wild, they do tend to just want to stay away from you. They don't really want that much to do with you. Like they won't cause conflict unless, yeah, obviously we're wrangling them and tagging them and trapping them. They probably have a different opinion on us, but yeah, um, definitely a lot shyer in the wild than the ones I've worked with in zoos. Well, Eliza, thank you so much for jumping on our podcast. You have really brought us an insight into fieldwork, into the possibilities for uh, women and women and wildlife. And we really appreciate the time we've taken to jump on our podcast. So thank you so much. No, thanks so much for having me. It's been, yeah, a pleasure. And yeah, really grateful that you invited me on. So thanks so much. Thanks, Eliza. Well, guys, it was really nice to talk to someone about conservation and research projects. Daisy and I acknowledge that we have spoken a lot about training in previous episodes, so it was refreshing to chat about different avenues within this industry. Yes, we do love a training chat. Now, if you do have any further questions for Eliza, as always, we will pop her details in the show notes. That's it for now. We'll be back in your ears next week. See ya. Bye.